We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. socialist program. This is Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show. Today is a special episode of our host, Brian Becker, discussing the importance of the classic socialist organizing text, the Communist Manifesto, and how we can actually achieve a socialist society. He gave this talk at the People's Forum earlier this month. The Communist Manifesto is, it's fun to read and one of the purposes of my talk is to encourage people to read it and to read it in a particular way. It's fun to read also because it's not too long. We're all busy. We either have families or jobs or both and going to school and people are not reading long books that frequently. Well, you can read the Communist Manifesto pretty quickly. It's four basic sections and a a preface. It's about 45 pages long. It's a little tiny pamphlet When I was growing up in the middle of the witch hunt, the Cold War, and we heard about the Communist Manifesto, I always thought it would be like the Bible, like some big, giant text. Well, there is a book that Marx wrote like that. It's called Capital, but that comes later. That's published in 1867. It's his major work. It's a scientific work. It's an examination of the laws of capitalism, And when you read Capital, which is a dense, and many people find it a complicated text, you have to really stick with it. And if you can read it with somebody or a group of people, all the better, because you're sort of searching or or hoping to be able to fully understand what Marx is saying. It's complicated. That's not really the case with the Manifesto. The Manifesto is not a dense scientific work. It is in many ways popular prose, and it's a polemic. It's a polemic on behalf of a small group of people who associated themselves at that time as communists, as opposed to the people who had earlier identified themselves as socialists. And the socialists were some of the names you might recognize, Charles Fourier, Saint-Simon, Robert Owens, may or may not have ever heard of them, but they were considered to be the what we would call and what Marx called the utopian socialists. And you know, in popular vernacular, we're always told socialism is a utopia, an unrealizable utopia, sort of a dream that once implemented in society becomes a nightmare, not a good dream, a bad dream. And we also are told it's a utopian, meaning unreachable goal. Well, that's not what Marx and Engels meant when they described these leaders like Robert Owens or Foyer or Saint-Simon, who were the utopian socialists. Their ideas were not utopian in the sense that they were unrealizable. They were completely realizable. They were the people who said, look, 
there shouldn't be a society where society is divided between a very tiny group that has so much and the rest of the population that has so little that we need to find a way to distribute the resources of society in a way that's not only rational but fair, something that allows everyone to have equal opportunity. So because they were promoting a system where there was equal opportunity and a system that would eliminate poverty, they were considered to be sort of very revolutionary people and their ideas were ridiculed by bourgeois society and by the elites in Europe as being something terrible and unrealizable. But the things that the utopian socialists were calling for were things like public education, the creation of kindergarten, the idea that women should have equal pay with men, the things that we would consider to be very, like, achievable reforms, and reforms many of which, at least on paper, have been achieved, they were derided by bourgeois society and by the elites as something that was out of touch, a dream that could never, ever be realized, outlandish ideas. And Marx and Engels called them utopian not because their idea of what society could look like was unreachable, that's not what made them utopian. What Marx and Engels criticized them or called them utopian for was the method by which this better society could be created. The utopians tried to create socialist communities which by way of example would show we can get rid of poverty, we can have equality between men and women, that everyone can get an education, that this elimination of poverty would give everyone an equal chance. They tried to create communities that were sort of communes or insulated environments. In the case of Robert Owens, who was a Welsh industrialist who gave all of his fortune away, he created a city in Indiana called New Harmony. And it was a socialist experiment that lasted a few years before it no longer worked. And I don't really need to go into why it stopped working. But Marx and Engels, their argument was, no, these are completely achievable demands, but we can only win them not by way of example. We can't create ideal socialist experiments that then the ruling elites will say, hey, that's a better way of organizing society. Let's implement this more rational course. Let's distribute the wealth so that instead of us having like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos making 180, not making, possessing $180 billion, $200 billion, let's give that money to poor people and to make sure that no one's poor anymore. The elites were like, no, we're never going to do that. It would be like asking the slave-owning ruling class in the United States, based on having an appeal to reason, that it would be better really to get rid of the system of human enslavement because it would really benefit all of society. The slave owners were like, no, you're not going to do that. So Marx and Engels were saying that what made utopian socialist utopian was the idea that you could convince the ruling classes to have a more rational, more humane approach to life. And Marx and Engels said the solution, the way to get to the socialist society, was to overthrow the ruling class, 
through the process of revolution. So the Communist Manifesto basically codifies this new, what Marx and Engels later called scientific socialism, not utopian socialism, meaning we can achieve socialism, we can have the so-called utopia, but by virtue of class struggle, revolution, and of course, armed struggle, because the old ruling classes will not give up their power, their privileges, their wealth, just because people have made the argument that it's a better way to live. They will fight tooth and nail. I mean, we can just look at, the, at what happened in the United States. I mean, the Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. Twelve years later, the slave-owning ruling class, the slave-owning capitalists in the United States created an independent Confederate republic to maintain slavery as a social system because they feared that over time the Union would start to end slavery. So they created an armed struggle against the United States. And it was only when the northern capitalists, finally with the intervention of the enslaved masses of people in the South themselves, following the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, where hundreds of thousands of enslaved people were brought into the Union Army, that the slave owners were defeated, and that the system of enslavement as a legal system, as the legal law of the land came to an end. You know how many Americans died in the Civil War? Originally, the numbers were considered about 600,000 Well, now, latest estimates is 700,000 people died in the U.S. Civil War when the country was 30 million people, one-tenth the size of the population today. So if we had the equivalent number of casualties as they had in 1860 to 65 during the Civil War, the number of dead would be about 7 million people, more than any other casualty figure for any other U.S. war. And why? Because the old capitalist ruling class that had premised its wealth on the enslavement of human beings kidnapped people, people kidnapped from Africa and brought here in the transatlantic slave trade, they would rather and did fight a war that took the lives of what was the biggest casualty figure in U.S. history in order to maintain that system. And Marx and Engels are saying that's true about the feudalists, that's true about the slave owners, and it's also true about the modern capitalists who are not premising or basing their wealth on the labor of enslaved individuals, but on the system of what Marx and Engels called wage slavery, where the entire working class that was, quote, free labor was compelled to go to work every day because unlike the capitalists, The workers had nothing to sell except their own ability to labor, their ability to go to work. And in exchange for selling our labor to the capitalists, we receive a wage. And with that wage, we try to stay alive. We spend some of it to another capitalist to buy food, some to another capitalist to pay rent, you know, another capitalist to buy clothing. But by virtue of getting a wage in exchange for the one thing that the working class does own, which is its ability to labor or have labor power hired by the capitalists, Marx and Engels are saying this system of wage slavery will not end except by virtue of class struggle. 
And so I want to read the first paragraph of the preface. It's, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into holy alliance to exercise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals, and German police spies. So they're writing in 1848, in February 1848, that a specter of communism is haunting Europe. Now, when you read this book, you have to put it into historical perspective. It's not exactly accurate that a specter of communism was haunting Europe at that time. In 1917, when the Russian Revolution happened, all of the capitalists in Europe and the United States and Japan united to invade socialist Russia. The specter of communism was indeed haunting the elites in 1917, and 14 imperialist armies invaded Russia when the revolution happened, and they raised armies, and three million people in Russia died trying to defend their revolution because the imperialists were haunted by the specter of communism. They felt, well, if Russians can make a socialist revolution, they can do that in Germany. And the German workers were trying to do that at that time. And they can do it in Hungary. And there was a revolution in Hungary at the same time. Same time as the Russian Revolution. Hungary, Germany, Russia. And the specter of revolution was spreading throughout the capitalist world. So Marx and Engels are anticipating that the capitalist ruling classes, once communism starts to emerge as a force, will treat it as a specter that must be destroyed. And in that sense, they're accurate, even though their statement might have been a little bit overblown. In fact, when this manifesto is written by Marx and Engels, and Marx by that time in that year when he writes this is 28 years old, Engels is two years younger, he's 26. So they're both very young, they're young people. You know, if it was in the United States, it would be that age group is frequently considered like delayed adolescence or something like that. But they're young. But all the revolutionaries at that time are young. And that's true about all revolutions. You look at the Cuban Revolution or the Russian Revolution. There was a revolution in Yemen in the 1960s. I met the ambassador from the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which is, was South Yemen, I met him in 1972, and he was, he was my age. He was 21. I was like, you're the ambassador? <laughs> but of course, revolutions are made by young people, and Marx and Engels were young. They were filled with commitment and enthusiasm. When they wrote the pamphlet, the revolution actually, they were anticipating a revolution in Europe. And within two weeks, the revolution broke out. There was a mass upsurge of the working class in Paris. And the revolution spread all over Europe, all through 1848. February, March, April, May. Revolutionary struggles in Italy. Italy was struggling for national liberation, meaning to unify Italy, to be free of Austrian domination. Poland was rising up, trying to be free of the Russian czar. The French and German proletariat were rising up. It was a period of great revolutionary ferment. There was a specter haunting the old elites in Europe at that time, but it wasn't the specter of communism. And as a matter of fact, 
the people who are making the revolution didn't know anything about this pamphlet. This pamphlet has no role in the 1848 revolution. They write their pamphlet, they write it as a document from this tiny little secretive society called the Communist League, which had been named the League of the Just until six months earlier than that. And Marx and Engels are influencing this other group of young people saying, like, let's get a better name. Let's call ourselves communists because we're fighting for communism, meaning we're fighting for complete equality of society. That's what it meant to be a communist, that everyone was going to have an equal opportunity and equal access to the society's resources. It was that simple. It was going to be a return to that stage in the evolution of the human race, the longer part of our existence as a human family, when we lived in common. The indigenous populations that existed in North America before the Europeans showed up, or anywhere else in the world prior to the development of class society, lived as a commune. The tribe lived or died together. It ate or starved together. Earlier indigenous societies didn't have prisons. They didn't have a special state apparatus of police on top of people. When you think about indigenous societies in North America, you know, if somebody said, that's my lake, or this is my land, people would be like, what is that? What could that possibly mean? That lake belongs to everyone. This forest belongs to all of us. This grazing land belongs to everyone. The greater part of the existence of the human family, we were all communists. We lived in common. We lived inequality. There was not hierarchical societies. That was the period where the genealogy of children was traced through their mother. Because you might not know who the father was, but you would always know who the mother was. And so children got their name from their mothers. It was, as Marx and Engels describe in other works, matrilineal, non-patriarchal, but matrilineal society where men and women were equals. Later, as class society develops and there's a division between rich and poor, that's also where the idea of inheritance becomes a factor. Who's going to get what property? And then men had to know who their sons were. And you have the emergence over a longer period of time of a patriarchal society and all of the social mores and basically imposed violent methods directed against women to control women, to dominate women, and to treat women as property. And that phase of human existence, which is, if you look at the whole time of our existence for the last couple hundred thousand years, this is about a year out of those couple hundred thousand where we have, we're living under private property societies, patriarchal societies, and then we all are told and believe, well, this is human nature, even though it's only a very tiny fraction of what it meant to be alive as human beings during this long several hundred thousand year period. So Marx and Engels, when they're writing the manifesto and developing the theories that we now know as scientific socialism, are making the argument that we can and must and will want to return 
to our communist roots where we're living in common with inequality, but in order to get there, we're going to have to have a struggle. It's not going to be by convincing the slave owners, the elites, the bankers, the rich, that there's a better way. When you read the manifesto, read it as a historical document. Communists, socialists, or Marxists do not read the manifesto the way, say, Christians read the Bible or Muslims read the Koran. Don't look at these documents as the word, like somehow Marx is a substitute God and he has spoken. And so in order to get knowledge, you must embrace and accept the word. And if possible, repeat the word. Repeat it over and over again, like in a liturgical style. That's not the way to read the manifesto. The way to read the manifesto is to read it as a historical document, not as a religious text. And you have to understand what is Marx or what are Marx and Engels doing when they write this pamphlet? What are they fighting about? What are they trying to convince people of? They're in the middle of an argument with the other people who are emerging as socialists during this period of revolution that there has to be a way to look at society differently from the way the utopian socialists looked at society. The utopian socialists looked at the working class as victims of capitalism, and they wanted to create systems that would end the victimization of the proletariat, of the working class, and to raise people up. So they looked at injustice as essentially a moral issue. And by creating a new, better, more moral, more ethical society, they could help the victims of capitalism, the poor, the oppressed, the working class, have a better opportunity and a better life. Marx and Engels are rejecting this idea. Not that the working class is not victimized. You couldn't be in Europe at that time and see workers who are children at the age of seven or eight years old working 10, 12, 14 hours and not think of them as victims. You know, the working class fighting for, at first, fighting for a 12-hour day. You know, people who would, if they weren't hired by the capitalists, would literally starve to death literally starved to death. And so people had to compete with each other to go to work. You have to line up for a job that the capitalists who own the property, who own the factory, that they will give you a job. And you hope to beat out your fellow workers and be given that job. And if you get the job, you then go and work in a factory for 10 or 12 or 14 hours. And in most of those factories, the bosses locked the doors so nobody could leave. And that's why, like, when fires broke out, everybody died. Like the fire here in New York City, the Shirtwaist Triangle Fire, 1910 or 1911, where the bosses had locked the doors. And all the women perished in that fire, which then initiated a, a struggle for reforms, a class struggle. The reason we have unlocked doors and fire protection in factories now is because those women built unions. That's where International Women's Day comes from. It was their struggle, the struggle of garment workers in New York, women here and in Massachusetts, and the socialist movement internationally proclaimed their struggle on March 8th, 
1908 and then 1912, where there was a follow-up demonstrations to be International Women's Day. That's how International Women's Day, which was International Working Women's Day, that's how that came into existence. That was a class struggle. So Marx recognized that the workers were victims, but he also recognizes, and this is what you get from the manifesto, that the working class are, in addition to being victims, they are going to be the masters of the new society, that they are not only victims, that they can take political power and by virtue of the class struggle and the revolution and the taking of political power, the working class in the manifesto, it's declared, will become the ruling class. Now that is a notion that the bourgeoisie would never have considered that the poor, the workers, the people working 12, 14 hours a day in factory would be the new power in society, that they would be the new ruling class. And Marx said, yes, in fact, capitalism produces all of this wealth. It's a revolutionary, it revolutionizes the means of production. It brings in new technology. But capitalism, above all else, creates its own grave diggers. And in this revolutionary proclamation in the manifesto, Marx is saying the working class, once it is enlightened and empowered with politics and with its own history and knows its mission and knows that it can actually fight and win and become the new masters of society and then collectivize the means of production, get rid of private property, make it social as it was for the bigger part of our existence as a human family to return to our communist roots, that this process whereby the working class would become the ruling class, or as Marx says in the manifesto, where the proletariat achieves political supremacy. You've heard the formulation, the dictatorship of the proletariat, maybe. Dictatorship has sort of a bad connotation these days, so people don't understand the historicality of the term. But what Marx meant by the dictatorship of the proletariat was that the working class, unlike the capitalists, would take political power, that it would gain political supremacy, that it would have a social system that was aimed to meet the needs of the working class rather than the needs of capitalist exploiters who get rich because of the labor of other people, meaning the workers. And so Marx in the manifesto, and this is pretty much the first time that it's really formulated like this, says our goal, and this is why he anticipates that the specter will haunt the capitalists, is we're gonna take the power from you. We're gonna be the power. We're not gonna to try to convince you by socialist experiments. We're gonna have a political and social struggle and seize the power, take the power, create a new government, and organize the economy on a socialist basis. So the revolution happens in 1848. Think of the manifesto as a historical document by a minority group, a secret society, the Communist League or the League of the Just. And in this revolution in 1848, Marx is in a debate with the other, this is an important part as you read it, because again, don't think of this as a religious text, think of this as a historical document. Marx is in a fight with the other people who are in the Communist League. And I wanna explain what the fight was about, because people don't really, most people don't, even people who think of themselves as Marxists don't know about this. Marx and Engels believed that the revolution that they were talking about that was haunting the elites was gonna be in Germany. 
and it was going to overthrow German feudalism. The French Revolution had already happened in 1789. The French feudal class, the king and queen, were liquidated, literally. Feudalism was uprooted root and branch. The feudal society, nobility, aristocracy, done away with. The French Revolution was like the thing that changed Europe and then changed the world. It spread almost instantly to Haiti, where the Haitian masses, 90% of whom were enslaved by the French, who had just had this bourgeois, anti-feudal, pro-democratic revolution, the Haitians said, well, you're having these manifestos about the rights of man and the citizen, meaning we all have rights, but we are in fact enslaved by you. And that's, no, we're gonna have the same revolution. And the Haitian masses had this revolution. It started in 1791, three years after the French Revolution. And by 1804, Napoleon's armies are defeated, completely defeated by the formerly enslaved people in Haiti who rise up and destroy the French armies, the strongest imperial army, and Haiti becomes independent. The first time a slave revolt was successful in human history where the enslaved people took the power. Unfortunately for the people in Haiti, the French bourgeoisie, aided by American capitalism, then embargoed Haiti and sanctioned Haiti and made Haiti pay reparations to the French for their own freedom. The ancestors of the revolutionaries in Haiti in 1804, their children and grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, were still paying the ancestors of the French slave owners for reparations for their losses by the revolution that had freed the enslaved people in Haiti. Can you imagine? You know, Haiti has all of these problems today. Haiti was still paying reparations to the French a hundred years after the Haitian Revolution. In 1904, they were still paying the French property damage for their own freedom. And then the U.S. invaded Haiti in 1915 and took the entire all the assets of the country and brought it to Citibank and deposited it with the Rockefellers. So Haiti never caught a break. Anyway, seems like a divergence and might be, but my point is that this revolutionary process that began in France and then spread to Latin America, the French Revolution happens in 1789 and gets even more radical in 1792. And then the counter-revolution comes in and Napoleon takes power later sort of towards the turn of the century, but as a consequence of the Napoleonic Wars, Spain and Portugal are weakened by the French armies. So their colonial empires are weaker in Latin America. The people in Haiti are rising up from 1791 to 1804, but then starting in 1805, all of the Americas goes into revolution against Spain and then against Portugal. So the revolution for independence in Latin America is sort of a offshoot of the European revolution that starts in France in 1789. So across the two parts of the Atlantic, revolution. But in Europe, in 1815, when Napoleon's armies are defeated at Waterloo, a new period of great reaction sets in. The old you know, absolutist monarchies and empires reassert themselves. The revolution is crushed by counter-revolution. And that's the way things stay until 1848. 
and the revolution breaks out again in Europe and Marx and Engels, when they're writing the manifesto, they're thinking Germany missed all of that. Germany didn't have a revolution like France. Germany didn't have a revolution like the revolutions that were taking place in Latin America. So they're thinking Germany is going to have the revolution and they have this argument with their other communists. And again, you'll only kind of get a veiled reference to this in the, when you're reading the manifesto. Marx believes that the German revolution in 1848 should be like the French revolution of 1789 and 1791. So there's historical continuity. So Marx is thinking, Marx and Engels, young people, 28, 26, they're thinking, now the revolution's starting up again in 1848. It's been sort of silent for 50 years. And we're going to have the real revolution finally against feudal Germany. And they're making the argument that because the French Revolution was led by the French bourgeoisie against the French feudalists, that the communists should support the German bourgeoisie in its struggle against feudal Germany, against the monarchies, against the princes, against the old medieval dynastic rule in Germany, which was dominant in Germany. And Marx believes that the German Revolution will be sort of a replay of the French Revolution. But in two years, what happens is the revolution is completely defeated in Germany, in France, in Italy, in Austria, in Poland. There's a period of great counter-revolution that begins in 1849, 1850, 1851. All of their ideas are snuffed out. And Marx comes to the conclusion that the bourgeoisie in Europe, unlike the bourgeoisie in Europe, 60 or 70 years earlier will not play a progressive role in the struggle against feudalism. And the reason for it is they're more afraid of the poor. They're more afraid of the workers coming into political life. And as they were struggling against the old dynastic feudal monarchical rules, that the working class, once it was in motion and fighting for the liberation from medieval feudalism wouldn't stop, that they would go forward and have a socialist overthrow of the bourgeoisie against the capitalists, that the revolution would become a permanent revolution. It wouldn't be a revolution based on stages. And the bourgeoisie decides to make an alliance with the old feudalists and crushes the revolution and the workers are destroyed in all of these countries. It's a bloodbath. It's a terrible bloodbath all over Europe. 1848 and 1849, many of the Germans who moved to the United States during that time period, they were the 1848ers. They were the people who were rising up against the old establishment and they were destroyed. It was also a period of the potato famine in Ireland where the masses in Ireland were literally starving to death. And so the revolution the bourgeoisie proves itself to be a counter-revolutionary force, unlike in France, where the French bourgeoisie was actually played a progressive role against the old monarchy. That they led the workers, the middle class, the poor, they were all in it together. Liberty, fraternity, equality, those were the banners of the French tricolors in the struggle against the king. Marx comes to the conclusion after the experience of 1848 that he was wrong that the bourgeoisie will not play a progressive role and that the working class now has to completely fight on an independent basis, 
to make the revolution against medievalism, feudalism, and capitalism, that it'll all be one struggle together. Now, what happens to the manifesto after it's written? I said in the beginning, nobody knew about it, right? When the 1848 revolution or counter-revolution is happening. Just the League of the Communists know about it. And the League of the Communists are put on trial in Cologne in 1852, and all of the leaders are sentenced to prison, long prison terms. And they dissolve the League of the Communists. And so instead of a specter haunting Europe, the specter of communism, it looks like communism's over. But it's not over. It comes back. But it takes 20 more years with the establishment of the Paris Commune. And when the Paris Commune is the next wave of revolution in France in 1870, that revolution, people start to read the manifesto again. They start to think, oh, where, what's the doctrine for revolution? So during the period of counter-revolution, the manifesto disappears, goes into oblivion. But then there's a new wave of revolution in 1871 in Paris. There's a first Socialist revolution ever anywhere is in Paris, 1871. It lasts two months. And then the French bourgeoisie, which has been at war with Germany, unites with the German military to come in and crush its own people, the Parisians. And 30,000 Parisians are massacred. And the manifesto goes back into oblivion. Nobody cares about the manifesto because there's no revolution. The manifesto only is a historical document, and it always becomes a point of interest when the struggle for revolution starts to resume. The one thing that Marx could not see in his lifetime, really, only at the very end, was the creation of socialist parties. The movement was too weak to actually create a political party. First of all, the proletariat in Europe did not have the franchise. People couldn't vote, so they couldn't have socialist parties running in parliament. In the United States, white men who did not own property got the right to vote in 1828 during the Andrew Jackson campaign. So before there was the creation of a socialist party or a labor party in the United States, white men who, without property who had the right to vote, women obviously did not have the right to vote, 99% of the black population in America did not have the right to vote. But white men started to vote for either the Whigs or the Republicans or the Democrats. So they developed a political loyalty, unlike in Europe, where the proletariat did not have the right to vote and only won the right to vote in the 1870s, the 1880s, I mean, in continental Europe. And that was also when the formation of unions is taking place. And so the workers formed their own parties to compete in the elections. That's why you had a Labour Party in Britain, why you had the German Social Democratic Party or Socialist Party, which got the right to vote in 1890. And by 1910, that party has one third of the seats in the parliament. After the working class gets the right to vote, they start voting socialist in Europe. And the manifesto becomes the Bible of the socialist movement. That's when the manifesto is then translated into all of the different European languages, and it becomes really what the working class in Europe starts to look to. They're actually moving away from the Bible and towards the Communist Manifesto. And, you know, the Christian Bible and the manifesto are, and the Quran are by far the most well read documents in literature for the past couple of hundred years.
And, of course, some of the workers are reading the Bible and the manifesto. The communists weren't requiring people to make a choice. But, obviously, scientific socialism was moving in a different direction than religion, for the most part. So, the manifesto comes back historically as a big, important document. And then, in 1917, and this is where I'm going to end up, the Russian Revolution happens... And when the Russian Revolution happens and the specter of communism is truly haunting Europe and the United States, because the U.S. invaded Russia, socialist Russia, then too, 14 armies, including the United States, Lenin and the Bolsheviks survive. The revolution survives. And Lenin says, not just Lenin, but he's the leader of the party, the Communist International that's formed, They say, it's time to change the slogan of the manifesto. What's the slogan of the manifesto? Workers of the world unite. And the Russian Revolution succeeds under the leadership of the Bolsheviks. And Lenin and the Bolsheviks say, that's no longer a fully relevant slogan. We need a new slogan. What is it? Workers and oppressed people of the world unite. And the reason Lenin and the Bolsheviks are making the distinction is they come to the conclusion that the Russian Revolution is an indicator that the revolutionary, the center of revolutionary gravity is now leaving Europe and moving east. It moves to Russia. And if Russia says, we believe in the right of the colonized people for self-determination, to be free people, meaning the people of Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Latin America. And our revolution is going to champion the struggle of the colonized people. And so it's not simply the proletariat, but it's people oppressed as a whole people. Like if you look at the way Britain oppressed India, I mean, little, little Britain, a tiny island, oppresses an entire nation, India, you know, which is 10 times bigger than England, but it oppresses all Indians, the bourgeois Indians, the petty bourgeois Indians, the working class Indians, the peasant Indians. They're all oppressed because they're oppressed as a people. And Lenin and the Bolsheviks say the communist revolution in this era has to be not simply a working class struggle against the bosses in imperialist countries where most of the factories were, but a struggle of the colonized people against imperialism. And so we're going to forge an alliance between communism and the workers of the oppressed colonizer countries with the oppressed people, including the people representing different class forces, all of whom are oppressed by national colonial or semi-colonial oppression. So all the young socialists in China, they're like, wait, we're communists. Mao Zedong and... all of them who formed the student movement in May 4th, they said, we want to be like Lenin because he knows what we're talking about. We're not, you know, just workers in a factory fighting the bus. We are the Chinese people who have been subjugated by all of the Europeans. And the U.S. wants to subjugate us too. And so all the young people in China who are fighting for social justice become communists. And what do they start reading? The Communist Manifesto. So you see the Communist Manifesto as a historical document now becomes like 
the document of China, the document of India, the document of the Congo, the document of Iraq, the document of Iran, the document of Cuba, because now it's the era where the colonized and semi-colonized people are involved in struggle. And so the Communist Manifesto transforms between 1917 and 1950 into the document really more read in the so-called third world than in Europe and the United States. Still popular in Europe because the European working class is still oriented during that, most of that time period towards socialism and communism. But it really becomes the doctrine of global revolution, which is now anchored in the developing, emerging, formerly colonized parts of the world. So the manifesto in communism moves east and south. Vijay Prashad wrote the book, The Red Star Over the Third World, talking about the impact of the Russian Revolution as it becomes like the, the banner for people living under colonial rule. That's when the manifesto comes back. So Mao starts reading the manifesto, all of the Chinese young people reading the manifesto, and the manifesto now becomes translated into all of the languages of the world. In 1945, at the end of World War II, the U.S. decides the specter of communism, which is now haunting the whole world, because not only is Russia socialist, China socialist, North Korea socialist, North Vietnam is socialist, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Poland, Albania, Yugoslavia, East Germany, two-fifths of the world's people are living in governments that are ruled by communist parties, and the specter of communism is in full swing, there's a war then against communists here in the United States. That's the so-called witch hunt. And I want to bring to your attention this, I think, fascinating fact that 100 years after Marx and Engels, young people wrote the manifesto, there was a trial not far from here in New York City. It was called the Smith Act Trials. The leaders of the communist movement in the United States were put on trial for advocating the violent overthrow of the government. One of the people on trial was Ben Davis, who was a New York City Council member and the first African-American City Council member in New York City and also a communist. He's put on trial along with 11 others, and they're sentenced to long prison terms because they're violating the Smith Act because the government says, you are calling for the forcible overthrow of the U.S. government. And they were like, no, we're not. The members of the Communist Party in the United States had moderated their political position. They were like, no, we're for the peaceful transition to socialism. And at the trial, the prosecutor goes to section four of the Communist Manifesto and reads the last paragraph, and here's what it says. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chain. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. So the prosecutor says to the defendants, do you believe in the Communist Manifesto? 
they were like, yes, we read the manifesto, we teach the manifesto. And they say, well, Marx calls for the forcible overthrow of the system, and you agree with the manifesto. That means you believe in the forcible overthrow of this government, even though you say that you want a peaceful transition to socialism. And because of the words at the very end of the manifesto, the jury finds them guilty and they're sentenced to prison. And only in 1958 does the Supreme Court rule that it's illegal to put communists in prison because of their beliefs. The Supreme Court, that great institution of democracy, finally says 10 years later, no, you actually, if you're going to put people in prison, it's for something they did, not something they thought, not something they believed in, not something they read from a hundred, a document from a hundred years earlier. And so eventually the communists are let out of prison after they've served their terms. A hundred people went to prison in the Smith Act trials. And so people stopped reading the Communist Manifesto in the United States. So the Communist Manifesto takes another downturn as a historical document because of the fierce anti-communist repression. But today, brothers and sisters, comrades, people are talking about socialism again. They want change. They want social change. That's been happening the last couple of years. People are losing their fear. They're ready to organize. They're ready to mobilize. And whenever the movement starts to get back up on its feet, the first document people start to go to is this document, the Communist Manifesto. So I will leave it there. Read it as a historical document. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 